The Daily Rios, Episode 423, a look at Phase 2 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, by the time I'm finished with this, the opening weekend of Infinity War will most likely be over, but I'm sure there are plenty of people out there like me who don't mind waiting. Hey everyone, this is your host, Peter. We continue with the Marvel movies leading up to Avengers Infinity War. This is Phase 2, which means we have Iron Man 3, Thor The Dark World, Captain America Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy... Avengers, Age of Ultron, and Ant-Man. Now, a reminder, in case you didn't listen to the first episode, this is not an in-depth review of each movie. I don't even provide a synopsis. And instead, what I'm doing is rattling off moments that I jotted down as I was watching these movies, moments that connect to the larger narrative of each phase For instance, in Phase 1, it seemed to be the path to forming the Avengers, you know, introducing us to the main players, introducing us to supporting characters, the worlds that they inhabit, etc. Also, Phase 1 hit us with a bunch of preliminary Infinity Gems world-building. And then, obviously, as I was doing this rewatch, all of this is to look at the bigger picture and look at the build-up to Infinity War, which is here this weekend, and to see whether intentionally or not how events play out. And then as a bonus, uh, I get to see some of the other connective tissue stuff, character moments, or the way that the present movie universe connects with all of the past events that they like to build. Uh, You know, we get to see the mythology of the gems, as I said, supporting characters, technology, etc. Some of it, no doubt, is planned by the creators, and some of it is just me seeing things in hindsight. If I had to give an overview for this particular phase, I think some of the chapters are very forward-thinking in the sense that they riff off of the last movie or the last time we saw those particular characters and those movies are aiming for the larger narrative and I think of Winter Soldier in that regard and also Iron Man 3 and then others in this phase are just sequels and they have a checklist uh, that I feel has to be um, completed by the end of the movie and the narrative isn't so creative. It's, it's, it's a less, um, it feels more studio-driven. Maybe, maybe that's a way to say it. And in those regards, in that regard, I, I feel like Dark World, Thor Dark World, and Avengers Age of Ultron. Not to say that the other movies don't have those elements either, but they felt more organic than some of the other movies in this phase. I did feel that movie to movie, this phase was less linear than than phase one, which I guess makes sense because we aren't trying to establish the main characters anymore. Uh, and even though we have all of this Infinity Gem stuff swirling about, it's it's not like all of these movies 
led up to Age of Ultron in the way that the first phase led up to Avengers. In fact, I feel like what we're what we're sensing in this phase is we don't really get a payoff until I assume Infinity War. So this phase tends to feel a little more, I don't know, incomplete or uh, we get a lot of branches off of the main narrative and then eventually we make our way back, I assume, in phase three. There are a bunch of movies in phase three I have yet to see, or I guess I should say two. There are two movies I haven't seen in phase three. So yeah, you know, if phase one is kind of, if that's kind of like a linear uh, straight arrow in phase two, that arrow kind of branches off to the side. And then I assume by the time we get to Infinity War, it'll all come back to the center again. All right. As I said before, these are just bullet points. Maybe if you're listening to this and you're trying to think, oh, what happened in that movie and how does it create, how does it connect to the larger narrative? Maybe that'll uh, make sense as you listen to this. All right. So Iron Man 3 In the past, when it opens in 1999, Tony Stark has a line where he says, I had just created demons. And that's that's an interesting line because he's good at that. He's good at motivating people intentionally or not. And he's also good at motivating situations. And all of this will come back to haunt him, particularly in Age of Ultron and in Civil War as well. There's a bunch of stuff in this movie that feels like it could be connected to the creation of Ultron, as Tony is mucking about with the Mark 42, uh, he has internalized these little sequencers so he can just have the suit attached to him, you know, all in pieces. And one of the last bits that goes to him is his face mask, and it's just floating there kind of eerily as Tony tries to maneuver himself to so that it'll land correctly. And that just screamed Ultron to me. So I thought that was interesting. And we also have to think about why did he make all these suits, you know? And we find out that it's it was all out of fear. This is post-New York. This is post the battle in New York from Avengers. There are imminent threats. He can't sleep. He talks about how he fixes things. I fix things. And all of this preparation is a buildup to whatever it is he thinks is going to happen. There are larger threats out there that he feels they're not ready for. And this is something that does carry over to uh, Age of Ultron. In Iron Man 3, we get a whole bunch of new ideas. We get AIM. Uh, advanced idea mechanics. We get the extremist um, project, I guess you could say, which is all about limb regeneration and strength. We get an appearance by Yinsen from the first movie. Another look at the Ten Rings, the whole Mandarin thing. Uh, Rhodey is now the Iron Patriot. We get a president, President Ellis. So a lot of a lot of little bits and pieces here. I thought the sequence where um, Tony's home was destroyed was pretty cool. I really liked that. I I thought that was well done, well paced, um, well blocked. Uh, There was some tension there. And uh, (laughs) it's another time, either in that sequence or somewhere else, where Tony takes a real hard fall and comes away with it unscathed. 
So a lot of precedence for his suit to stand up to impact, but maybe because Rhodey's um, suit is the Mach 2, Mark 2, uh, maybe his isn't, his isn't as strong. I don't know. Um, we get some other post-Battle of New York comments. Rhodey says, after New York, Tony can't be relied on to do everything because some things aren't a superhero thing. Most notably, this Mandarin thing, which seems to be all about terrorism and something for the governments to handle. And then somebody has a line that says something like, ever since Thor fell from the sky, subtlety is out the window. So the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe that was created in Phase 1 is now ever-expanding for Phase 2. Speaking of Rhodey, he has an interesting arc. Um, so in Iron Man 1, he talks about how he's going to put on the suit next time. In Iron Man 2, he puts on the suit, but it's overpowered by Whiplash, and Rhodey doesn't necessarily have control of it until Iron Man um, regains control. And then in 3, Rhodey again is overpowered. This time his suit is taken from him by the one henchman of um, Killian. And he fights the whole battle at the end without a suit. Um, <laughs> you know, and then knowing what happens with him in Civil War, it just feels like Rhodey is there to be punked on all the time. And it's not a great character arc. Uh, and then at the end of this movie, Pepper is also given the extremist uh, formula, although I think there's something at the end of the movie where they say that she gets rid of it. And then by the end of the movie, Tony is left with, as he says, a clean, a clean slate. My armor was a cocoon, and now I'm a changed man. I am Iron Man. So that's a nice bookend to Iron Man number one. I'm not sure if this ending connects with where we're going with Tony in Age of Ultron or Civil War. I guess there are some things where who he is at the end of this movie makes sense with um, what he's going to do in Age of Ultron, but it, I don't know. I, I, I think the stepping stones are a little... I, I don't know. I don't think it works as well as, um, as they think it does. Now, as a trilogy in and of itself, I think the Iron Man's sure. The Iron Man movies make sense that way, where he starts off saying, I am Iron Man, the superhero, and he ends with, you know, I am Iron Man, whether I'm in the suit or not. So that kind of makes sense. I was not a fan of the kid stuff. I'm not sure what would make me like that plot. I don't know if it's a different character. I don't know if it's a different character within the Marvel Universe, someone that is from the comics, or maybe someone who has the potential to be seen later, because this this movie... I just felt like the kid was a throwaway. So I know what they're trying to get at. It's the whole inspiration angle. There's all this father and son stuff. You know, Tony's father to Tony, Tony to this kid. Being able to make a difference as Tony rather than as Iron Man. You know, being able to inspire someone as the man rather than the superhero. I get all that, but still doesn't work for me. Okay, so that's Iron Man 3. Let's go to Thor the Dark World. We get a new opening Marvel Studios logo sequence with this movie. We get a ton of Infinity Gem stuff, and yes, I know I'm still calling it the Infinity Gems, Infinity Stones, whatever. They will always be gems to me. 
Now, with this movie, the Thor movies are now two for three in setting up the Infinity Gems, and they are explored uh, in a major way here, where we learn that they are relics, and I think they are named in this movie for the first time by Volstagg. Um, we talk about the ether, which is the particular gem, gem in this one, that red, very fluid um, energy thing that Odin says, you know, the other relics are stones, but the ether is fluid, and it turns matter into dark matter. And then at the end of the movie, when they take the ether to the collector, he says, one down, five to go. So this movie, you know, has a, a clear path in what it wants to set up in terms of um, where we're going to go for phase three. So we get a bunch of, you know, there's a bunch of origin stuff in here. Now concerning Thor, I appreciated his journey in this movie uh, over the brief scenes we get in Avengers. This one felt more at home, which makes sense. It's his movie. Same thing with Loki and with the relationship between the two of them. So as a connection to Thor 1, this is why I feel like this is a good sequel as opposed to the next chapter because the next chapter was Thor in Avengers. And while he learned some things in that movie, I don't feel like this Thor is necessarily connecting from Avengers. I feel like this Thor is connecting from his first movie. So, for instance, when Loki and Thor uh, talk to each other, there's it's, it's a little more honest. It's a little more earnest. Um, we get deeper into their story and their relationship. Whereas in Avengers, it felt like, oh my God, I got to quick hit these bullet points about these two brothers so that people who maybe didn't see Thor understand who they are. Whereas here, we can take our time a little bit. So some things that stood out. Um, Odin says, uh, all of this because Loki wants a throne. And he also says, your birthright was to die. Uh, I feel Thor's wig is much better in this movie than it was in Avengers or the first movie. We get this real interesting notion of family, particularly when Thor is looking at Volstagg and his family. Now, does that mean Thor and Jane? Does it mean Thor with the Avengers? Uh, there's a longing that Thor has that really comes out in this movie. Uh, and then he says at the end to Odin, I'd rather be a good man than a great king, which uh, is a nice growth for him. And the movie ends with some kind of future for Thor. What is it? You know, he goes and reunites with Jane, and he can have any future he wants. But this doesn't connect to Age of Ultron at all. Next thing you know, he's working with the Avengers, and Jane is totally brushed off. He doesn't even know where Jane is. So I have yet to see Ragnarok, so I don't know if this trilogy is going to connect in the way that Iron Man 3 did. But where this movie left off has felt it felt like there was no connection to later movies same thing with uh ending the movie with loki as odin i don't know if this plays off plays out in ragnarok i have yet to see it so um curious to see how that figures into phase three okay then we get to malekith as the villain and there's been a lot of criticisms about these marvel movies having very throwaway villains and I feel like Malekith and um, Ronan from Gardens of the Galaxy suffer the same fate because it's not about the villain. It's about what the villain seeks 
For instance, in this movie, Malekith wants the ether, and in Guardians, Ronan wants the orb. So we get a lot of information about the items, and we get some inf information about the villains, but it's like a race. It's a race between hero and villain to get this object, and because Marvel is putting such weight on these gems, I feel like our energies are drawn to the gems themselves, not to the villains. So as I was watching it, I felt, oh, every time the ether is on screen, I'm invested. Every time Malekith is on screen, yeah, you know, it's fine. It's, it's not great. But he's not the point. He's not the thing that's going to make it out of this movie that's going to make the next phase interesting. So I feel like people's criticisms that these villains are throwaway characters um, have merit. I think they have merit. All right, some other bits and pieces here. Odin said, we are not gods. And when I was watching the attack on Asgard from the dark, um, by the Dark Elves and Malekith, and you start to see the technology of Asgard. And while, while it has some mythological aspects to it, it's weaponry. It's almost space weaponry, alien weaponry, laser beams and flying ships that feel less mythological and more sciency. Uh, even the Asgards, uh, even the Asgardians, I should say, their weapons shimmer a little bit with energy or lasers or whatever. So... This notion that Asgardians are aliens who maybe are just long-lived and think of themselves um, as beings of higher power, they, they aren't exactly gods. So that was an interesting twist from this movie, and I imagine it also plays out in Ragnarok, but I came away thinking, huh, that's a, it's a little bit of a departure from the comics, although I'm not so up-to-date on Thor comics, so maybe that's something they're exploring as well. Oh, a couple things here to wrap this up uh, for Thor. Odin tells Thor to forget Jane and go for Sif. There's a relationship between the two of them that was squandered and really had no weight. When Malekith was out in space, I wondered where he was. What other dimension was that? Was it, was it the same space where Thanos is? That seemed kind of weird. And we get some origin stories about the nine worlds, the nine realms, that the dark forces uh, where the dark elves come from actually came before the nine worlds. So with the dawn of the nine worlds and the whole convergence thing, we got we went from darkness to light. So that was a nice little bit of uh, history continuity. Whether that means anything in the larger picture, I'm not sure. In this movie, Frigga finally gets to do something. Rene Rousseau, even you know, but then she dies. And I was questioning why Hogan the Grim was not in this movie. Just He was just in it a little bit in the beginning and then was nowhere to be found, which I thought was very strange. Okay, Captain America, Winter Soldier. This movie has a lot of spillover from the Avengers movie. Two points in particular. Uh, in Avengers, Cap says to Nick Fury, he wonders what this country lost by winning the war, World War II. And he also starts to doubt... Fury and to doubt the intentions of S.H.I.E.L.D. in the first Avengers movie when he realizes that they are dealing with Hydra technology. So some of that carries over into this movie to the point where he has that conversation with Nick Fury and says, you know, the construction of Project Insight, all of these new helicarrier helicarriers, 
This isn't freedom. This is fear. And Fury says, look, S.H.I.E.L.D. takes the world as it is, not as we'd like it to be. So I thought there was a nice little counterpart there between the two characters. Captain America, he has a bunch of lines that talk about his frustrations with S.H.I.E.L.D. He says he's tired of being S.H.I.E.L.D.'s lapdog. When it is found out that HYDRA has infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D., Cap is very adamant about dismantling S.H.I.E.L.D. He doesn't want to just save it. He wants to dismantle it. And that felt like a holdover from the first Avengers movie. And then, of course, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the TV show, that's why Nick Fury comes to Agent Coulson and says, you know, here you go, start S.H.I.E.L.D. over again. We get more of this notion of Cap being out of time, Black Widow trying to find a place to belong, and with uh, Hydra infiltrating S.H.I.E.L.D., she doesn't know what to believe. She doesn't know who she's meant to follow. Um, there's a line about what makes Cap happy, and he doesn't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, by the end of the movie, Black Widow is totally outed. All of her personalities and all of her, you know, cover stories are all blown. Um, this feels very much like a civil world, civil war buildup. Maria Hill is at Stark Industries. Sharon Carter gets a job at the CIA. Um, Black Widow, after all of this Winter Soldier stuff, gives Captain America a file and about um, Bucky and says, you may not want to pull on that thread. So by the end of the movie, yeah, you know, this this movie feels like a really good pro progression from the Avengers, from the first Captain America movie, um, into what's going to happen next. So I thought that was good. Now, the, my problem with this movie and with Captain America in general so far is that he's never in charge until the last minute. So, you know, like when Fury in this movie says, you're giving the orders now, and they go and um, take down those three helicarriers. In the Avengers movie, he's not the leader until the Battle of New York, you know, midway through the Battle of New York. I feel like he is, he, it's his movie, but he's never in charge of it fully, you know? The stakes are about him, but he doesn't have complete control, you know? He doesn't have um, power until it's absolutely needed by the end. I don't know. There's there's something about it every time I watch it that I, I just want to say, you know, let the man be Captain America, <laughs> Um, and he is, you know, there are moments where he is. The elevator scene, taking down the um, Quinjet, uh, you know, the fight with Batroc, things like that. But those are the easy marks. Those are the easy marks. Anyway, um, what do we get in this movie? We get Sam Wilson as Falcon. We get Batroc. We get the Triskelion. Sharon Carter, even though she's not fully named, we don't know who she really is. We get Arnim Zola, as he, in a, as he is in the comics. We get Winter Soldier, of course. We get Hydra. And the World Council is back, which is kind of cool. Um, we learned that Barnes was the only Howling Commando to die in service. That's what was said in the tour in that Smithsonian um, display. So that means there's a lot of Howling, Com Howling Commandos that are out there somewhere. Um, the whole Winter Soldier thing, I feel... I had a bunch of people who aren't so familiar with the comics after they watched this movie said, said to me... You know, I really didn't feel anything when Bucky returned. I mean, yeah, it's Bucky. You're like, oh, it's Bucky. But the weight of it, I think, means so much more to those of us who know the comics. Um, but the way the movie 
established their relationship, um, and I talked about this in the last episode, had they kept Bucky until the end of the first Captain America movie, I think the reveal might have meant more. But they were, I think they were shortchanging the experience of how much time had passed in the comics for Bucky to come back. And they were just assuming that it would work the same way in the movies, but without giving it the full emotional weight from the first movie. I just don't feel like it works. But having said that, it's a good character, and um, we learn some stuff in here that will play out in Civil War, most notably in the Arnim Zola scene, where he talks about how Hydra has infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. in a different way, and when there are people who went against their wishes, they were removed from the table. And that's when you get the idea that um, the Starks, Howard and Maria Stark, were assassinated. And they show a picture of the Winter Soldier right after they show the newspaper clipping of Howard Stark dying in a car accident. So that little bit is quick, but it is there. So pieces are starting to come together. We get a mention of Stephen Strange, the Falcon stuff is pretty cool. Anthony Mackie is uh, a good actor. He fits well. He's He's got a, a calmness to him um, that I appreciate. We get a line from Arnim Zola where he says that he told Hydra, taught Hydra, how to read the future, how to, how to evaluate the past to predict the future. So I thought that was kind of cool. And then the credit scene, the after credit scenes, the one with Strucker, um, and the twins, right? That's a lead into uh, Age of Ultron and Civil War. I have no idea how they got the scepter. I guess maybe because it was in Shield's hands, and then Hydra got a hold of it. And at one point, Strucker says, "You know, this is the Age of Miracles." Um, now, my biggest takeaway with the ending and how Hydra was brought down at the in this movie is not a favorable one. I've, I've never liked the ending to this. You know, this whole, let us destroy the three helicarriers before they shoot millions. And then that's the end of Hydra because they're outed by Black Widow and, and the helicarriers are stopped and Winter Soldier is stopped and that's it. And I know some of it plays out in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, I was watching that series while that happened. And Ant-Man has a little bit of a Hydra connection. But... If they infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. to that degree, who was left to stop everybody? Why is it Why is it that just by taking down Pierce and taking down these helicarriers that that's the end of HYDRA? So it wraps up way too quickly for me. And I wonder, in hindsight, if they could have used this HYDRA stuff in the second Avengers movie. Could we have gotten to the same place um, had they used the infiltration of Hydra, the whole idea of trust, and maybe maybe Ultron was a way around it, you know? Maybe they still could have had the Ultron thing. I don't know. There was just something about this. I just, I'm not a fan of it, and it makes me a little worried, uh, maybe unnecessarily so, but that the wrap-up for Infinity War will be the same thing, that it's going to be one sort of battlefront, and as long as they stop Thanos in that one area, wherever it is, Wakanda or whatever, that um, they beat him back and that's it. You know, I think I'm hoping Infinity War is all around the world, that the battles are happening everywhere and that's why you get to see all of these characters. You know, just to wrap this up at the Triskelion with the helicarriers and that's it for S.H.I.E.L.D. in, in terms of the movies, 
felt cheated. I felt cheated by it, really. I, I wasn't as big of a fan of this movie as some people were because I felt like the Hydra's... I mean, we only really get Hail Hydra, what, a few times with the one senator and with Sitwell. And I wanted... I want I want to find where Hydra is everywhere, you know, in all the other movies. Who's the Hydra agent in Thor? Who's the Hydra agent um, in uh, uh, Iron Man, you know? Like, I don't know. Just... That's my own personal pet peeve with this movie, and um, I hope I hope they don't do the same thing with uh, Infinity War. All right, um, Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, if you didn't know what all the backstory was about the gems and about Thanos, you certainly find out in this uh, movie. Um, and remember, uh, Loki was the... Um, part of this whole scheme as well with Thanos and the other, that, that creature known as the other, that is like Thanos's um, second in command, I guess you can say, although he's, he's killed in this movie by Ronan. Um, so they make all these revelations and I feel like they're just throwing it right in your face. Like, boom, sanctuary, Thanos, the other, you get his name, you get what he wants. It just all kind of comes at once. And all this buildup that's been done in the after credit scenes or or in explanations or Thor finding stuff out it's like no here it is let's just let's just lay it all out here so I was like okay all right I guess that's what we're doing um this movie is just like dark world it's setting up a gem this time the purple orb we t- uh, collector tells the story of the orb and the singularities as he calls it the, and then he, I think they say the infinity stones in the origin, we get a little precedence for the whole Care Bear stare thing at the end of this movie, in that there are six beings that come together for one reason or another in the flashback while Collector is talking. So maybe this is something that will happen with Infinity. Um, if Star-Lord is able to hold on to the orb, uh, most notably because of his father being some kind of supernatural alien, then maybe that's something that'll happen at, with uh, Infinity War. I don't know. I wrote a couple things here about Star-Lord. He is just like Han Solo and uh, Indiana Jones. Uh, he's also like Kirk a little bit from Star Trek. And I like that he keeps saying, I'm Star-Lord. It's kind of a call to the way Tony Stark says, I'm Iron Man. And I think it'll be really interesting to see his interactions with Tony because the two of them are cut from the same cloth. In terms of Star-Lord and his connection to Earth, there's a real mother-son thing going on here, which is why I do not understand why the second Guardians of the Galaxy is pushing this whole father thing between Peter and Yondu. You know, I understand that the second movie is about finding his father, but this movie is all about his mother. His mom dies of cancer um, when he's being taken, when as a kid, Peter Quill is being taken by the aliens. He screams mom, not dad. The whole music thing is because of his mom. That's why he wants it safe. You know, when they take the Walkman, he's like, I got to get it. My mother gave it to me. The end of the movie, he gets the second, uh, cassette tape from his mom there's nothing in this first movie that establishes a father-son relationship Um, even the Care Bear stare is because of his mom when Gamora is screaming to him to take her hand he sees his mom again because that was the whole thing in the in when he was a kid she wanted 
Peter to take her hand, and he didn't, and then she died. So there's some stuff between Yondu and Peter in this movie, but it's not like the way they push in the second volume. I think the only line, uh, maybe Yondu calls him son once at the end, but it's but he always he calls him boy, so calling him son doesn't you know that's fine. Um, and then Yondu says something like uh, that he was the only family that Peter had. Uh, or no, Peter says that about Yandu. He was about the only family I had. And no, he wasn't because Gamora, I think, takes him and says, no, you, you have a new family now. So I, I'm i not, I know when I, I had a problem with Guardians Volume 2 when they were trying, everybody was like, oh my God, the whole Yandu peter thing was so sad. And I felt, where the hell did that come from? So, all right, at the end of this movie, Drax has a hard-on to go after Thanos instead of Ronin. And that's straight out of the book, so I like that. And then some other things here. We get the Ravagers, we get Ronin, we get the Kree, Nova. Um, the aliens were hired to pick up Peter for his dad. So uh, I don't quite exactly remember how that plays out in Volume 2, but I guess we'll see that. Nebula, Korath, uh, Gamora, the Broker, um, Rocket, Groot, the Kiln. Um, we get the Celestial Head, known as Nowhere, Um I wondered if the, I don't know if this has been said anywhere, but there was a Nova agent that um, Ronan was torturing, and I wondered if that was Richard Ryder. All right, so that's Guardians of the Galaxy. That was a lot more fun. I had a lot more fun with that movie than I thought I was going to have. Um, I liked it in the, the first time I saw it, but, uh, uh, you know, it was it was still okay the second time. All right, Avengers Age of Ultron. I'm just going to read my notes here because they're kind of all over this place. We get some spillover from Winter Soldier, rounding up Hydra bases. Captain America says that they've faced enhanced beings before. This is when he notices uh, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, so I wondered what that meant. And that's that's obviously a story that happened in between movies. I feel like in the opening scene, the CGI does not hold up. Iron Man now has the Iron Legion, not quite like the armor that he had before, but like these robots, so again what happened between Iron Man 3 and this movie that he's back to making things again. I think this time around it was a little clearer that Tony's path to making Ultron um, was because of what Wanda did to him. Not that I missed it the first time, but it really stuck out this time. Um, He wants to take the scepter. He wants to study it. Uh, He goes back to the whole thing again where he's doing it out of a, a perceived notion of fear and he talks about peace in our in our time. Uh, he says he wants to put a suit of armor around the world, this vulnerable blue one. We need Ultron. So he's back to that panic mode again. For some reason, War Machine and Falcon are sidelined again, and I don't understand why War Machine was used in the Battle of Segovia, but not Falcon. I just don't understand why, you know. Could putting one more person in really cost them that much more? I don't know. Ultron's first speech at the party is an interesting speech. I want to listen to it again because there's stuff in it that is kind of fascinating, but I feel like the movie dips away from what he's trying to talk about to one degree or another. I feel like there's part of this movie that kind of gets away from what it really wanted to do. Um, we get a moment, oh God, when Ultron attacks at Stark Tower, where Bruce and, uh, 
the Black Widow jump over a bar and Bruce's face winds up in her in her boobs. Just like Justice League of America, where Flash landed on Wonder Woman. And I was like, you gotta be effing kidding me that this that, that scene in Justice League has a precedence. That he's such a one-trick pony that he feels like, oh, the way to make a joke is haha boob face and boobs or haha man landing on woman. Oh man. There's a couple other things in this movie where I was like, see, see, Whedon, it's all your fault. Um Ultron wants vibranium, and that's how we get claw, or I should say, uh, what's his name? Ulysses. Uh, we get Wakanda. We get a scene that will have some play with Civil War and obviously with um, Black Panther, although I have not seen Black Panther yet. Um, we have a couple visions. Both Thor and Iron Man have visions that feel like they connect with later things. So Thor has a vision of the gems. He also has a vision of vision. He sees vision's eyes during his um, trip into the water, I think. And Tony sees all of the Avengers dead, and they're in another part of space, and, and there's a portal closing, and in the in the distance of the portal is Earth. So um, at the time, I thought they were flashbacks. I thought the Tony thing was a flashback to the Battle of New York, and now I see, no, it's, uh, it's, it's something that he fears. He fears that he's going to be responsible for the death of the Avengers. So that's... Something to look for for Infinity War. Um, Tony says to Captain America, I don't trust a guy without a dark side. And Captain America says, maybe you haven't seen it yet. And Cap is talking about himself. So there's a little bit of a Civil War connection. When Tony and Bruce are making Vision, when they capture the body to make Vision... Um, the Avengers really kind of go after each other. Cap and Scarlet Witch and whoever else, Quicksilver, I think, is there until Thor comes and stops it all. But they're really going at each other. I mean, it's not just arguing. They're, they're, I, I was surprised by that scene. This time around, having seen all these movies leading up to that, that felt like a real fight. So that was interesting. The whole battle of Segovia... I felt is a little long. We get another Joss Whedon trying to interject this woman and kid, and it's because Hawkeye saves this kid, and then Quicksilver saves both of them that Quicksilver dies. So it's, you know, Quicksilver dies over this, I don't even know, this this dumb, I, I can't feel anything for the kid. I can't feel anything for Quicksilver. First of all, I knew it was going to happen because the trailers to this movie told us the entire story practically. But I hate everything about that. And I saw a couple deleted scenes where they tried to make this woman and this kid stand out even more. So thank God that didn't happen. But in the battle, there's a lot of quips. They're starting to come in. They're not so in your face, but it's just like, oh, let's put this quip in so it releases tension a little bit. And you just want to go, mm, how about not? My laptop's heating up here. Um, at the end of the movie, Hulk goes off. And that connects to Ragnarok. Uh, Thor also goes off. He's trying to found, find out who's behind all of these gems. Hawkman is off the grid. Uh, Iron Man, who knows where he goes. Because, uh, well, we see him in Civil War. but Or, yeah, before that, I, I don't know where he's going off to. And then the Avengers are left with Cap, Widow, War Machine, Vision, Falcon, and Scarlet Witch. 
watching this movie again um, felt a little long, um, and I was a little disappointed by the end. Again, as because I'm watching these movies back to back, I felt like this could have been about something else. And the Ultron stuff, while it was interesting, never played to its fullest potential in terms of what I see the world building doing. And, you know, they had some checklist stuff. We got to go to Wakanda. We got to get the twins in. We got to get Vision. We got to get the mind gem, you know. So, I don't know. And I know I read some things where Whedon and the studio butted heads a bunch of times. Um... They hated the Hawk man, Hawkeye family thing, and I, I wasn't that much of a fan of it either. Um, the only thing I really took away by the end of this movie is that, okay, both Tony and Thor had a vision, which I talked about before, and I wonder if that will carry over into the Infinity War movie. All right, then we get to Ant-Man, and again, I just have a bunch of notes here. Howard Stark, Agent Carter, Hank Pym, the Pym Particle... What happened to Janet? Will we will we see what happened to her in Ant-Man and um, uh, the Wasp? And it's kind of interesting because Ant-Man, the first Ant-Man movie, is, is a coda to a- Age of Ultron. And I think Ant-Man and Wasp is the, in the same place after Infinity War. I think it's the first movie after Infinity War. I can't remember. So that's interesting. Uh, Scott Lang, his daughter Cassie. He says, I got a daughter to take care of. I hate violence, although that doesn't necessarily carry out. We get Hope. We get Dr. Darren Cross. Um, I liked that there's a legend of Ant-Man during the war, during, I assume, World War II, but I, I, I can't remember which one it is. So this whole idea of this small character possibly being around when Captain America was around or in situations but you just didn't know he was there like that's interesting to me so and i think that was something that was batted around in terms of this movie of placing him within the battle of new york but i can't remember this movie the structure of it really is it's iron man it's iron man one all over again you know obadiah wanted what tony created in terms of the um arc reactor and the repulsor stuff and the same thing here cross wants what Pim made, and they both deal with suits, you know, and opposites. I don't know. It was interesting. There was an angle that I didn't pick up the first time of Scott Lang being almost like MacGyver, where he can put all this stuff together and make, you know, explosions and make a a device that he needs. We get the quantum realm, where all time and reality are at risk. There was a scene where during the montage, the training montage, where uh, Scott couldn't control the ants, but Hope could, but in a way that suggested that she was going overboard or maybe getting lost into the control. So I don't know if that'll play out in the second movie. And then, of course, we get the Ant-Man versus Falcon scene, which when you watch the uh, after credit scene... That's how we get Ant-Man into Civil War. And the whole movie is a heist movie. So I really didn't have much to say about this movie either. It was fine. It was a little bit Guardians of the Galaxy, even though this is a movie that was worked on well before Guardians of the Galaxy. um, I feel like it had the same tone where 
it was about the fringe characters of the Marvel Universe and how quirky they can be, and yet it can still fit in this larger Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, All right, there you go. Those are the movies. Iron Man 3, Thor, The Dark World, uh, Captain America, Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, Avengers, Age of Ultron, and Ant-Man. I can't honestly say I have a favorite. Um, it was interesting watching these Iron Man 3, Thor the Dark World, um, a little of Winter Soldier, but not a lot. The first two especially, uh, I hadn't seen in a while, and as I was watching it, it was almost like I was watching it for the first time going, oh, right, okay, this happens, oh, I see where this happens. The other movies, I haven't seen them a lot. I haven't seen Guardians a lot. I think I've seen Winter Soldier maybe the most out of all of these, um, but as I sat down with it, it was so familiar, and it makes me feel like, hmm, maybe that's where the formula of a Marvel movie starts to take shape, um, because I was surprised at how, I know I haven't seen these movies a lot, but yet it felt so familiar, and I wasn't learning necessarily anything new. I was just watching these bits to bits to bits. So I don't know. I don't know what that says about the movies. Um, if I'm watching something and I'm I'm not surprised about things I forgot, to me that's a little bit of a strike against it. So I guess we'll see. And then as I said, Phase 3 is rolling around and there are a bunch of movies in there I've only seen once and a few movies I haven't seen at all. So it'll be interesting to see how all of this stuff carries over to that stuff and then carries over to Infinity War and if anybody out there is still interested in listening, <laughs> uh, hopefully I'll be able to get that out by this uh, weekend, Sunday or Monday, by the end of the weekend, because eventually I do want to go see Infinity War. All right, you know the drill. Peter at thedailyrios.com. Come follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios, or you can leave a comment on the website. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 423. Talk to you soon. Bye.